All right, everyone, go ahead and find those seats. Great to see you. Uh, if we haven't met, I'm Andrew, one of the pastors, and um, like we just sang, we, we just uh, devote ourselves to the way of Jesus, and we worship him in song, and we learn the scriptures. It's the way that we sort of uh, retrain our loves and retrain our minds to, to want the things that God wants for us. So we're going to learn the scriptures together. Before we go any further, though, I just want to say thank you again for your support of our partners in Brazil, Justice, Compassion, and Hope. If you were not here, or if you're not following us on Instagram, we had the opportunity to um, support um, a family that we discovered was being sexually trafficked. And because of your generosity, we raised over $12,000. Um, yeah, in a week's time, which is fantastic, so that we can build a safe house for these uh, kids, uh, 5, 10, and 15, to live with their adult sister and where they will be um, uh, away from the predators that have been uh, oppressing and exploiting them. So um, this is only the beginning. We plan on um, sharing much more about what's going on in Brazil, the corruption that's there, the exploitation that's um, just horrific, uh, but also this incredible ministry that we can partner with in order to support and help end uh, the cycles of uh, oppression and sex trafficking. So anyways, thank you so much. And then the other thing that we just have to make mention of before we launch into our teaching is uh, just the crisis in the Ukraine that's going on this week. It's been boiling over for some time now. And now I was just checking right before the gathering started, and there is just an all-out onslaught on Kiev. Um, and so um, we, when we don't know what to do, but when we know there's injustice, what we do as the people of God is we just cry out for God to bring peace and for God to bring healing. And uh, so um, let's do that together. Father, we, we just want to acknowledge our sisters and brothers, fellow human beings, made in your image in the Ukraine, most of which are completely innocent, have nothing to do with the conflict that's going on, but are facing the very real um, problem of their homes being um, completely invaded and blown up and the safety um, that they once enjoyed is no longer there. And so God, we just cry out on their behalf, would you bring peace in the way that only you can bring peace You've done resurrection before. You've brought peace into our hearts. We know that you are capable of performing these kinds of miracles. And so we just pray and ask in your name, Jesus, would you bring healing and peace to that area. Also teach us as the people of Jesus halfway around the world how we can support through prayer and through other practical ways. God, we want to be a blessing in our, in our world. We want to be a part of solutions, not just a part of conflict. And so God, would you bring that through our community, we pray. And also God, as we turn our attention to your word, would you speak the truth over us? As I think about what Russia's known for, that misinformation campaign um, that makes understanding the truth very difficult, we know that we can turn to you and we can turn to the word of God which stands true. And we ask that in the name of Jesus, you transform us today. Pray you captivate us by your message, captivate us by your word, and then transform us as your people. And everybody said, 
Amen. All right, you guys, we're in a series, as you know, in the letter to the Galatians. So would you please stand with me for the reading of Scripture? This comes from chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism far beyond many of my own age among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Um, we're going to unpack Paul's story today. Um, I know this is probably obvious to you. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but my wife thinks that I would make a good one. Um, she, she says or she feels that I enjoy arguing the details. But my position is that I'm just really passionate about what's right. You might call that idealism. She calls it being a jerk. Uh, <laughs> so whenever I try and convince and persuade her that I haven't like somehow missed my calling, professionally arguing for a living, it just kind of proves her point. It's like an uh, unfortunate catch-22 situation. But one thing that I do know, um, not from my experience, but just like anecdotal knowledge from Hollywood, what we've learned from movies and TV, is that one of the best ways to prove your point in a courtroom is by interviewing an eyewitness. Now today we have things like DNA evidence and stuff like that, but for my example, just forget that exists for a second, um, because I'm trying to make a point here. If someone has a, a motive or opportunity to commit a crime, but there's an eyewitness who says, well, he couldn't have done it because during the time when the crime happened, we were together and we were night skiing, here's the Instagram photo. Like, that's pretty good evidence that that person is innocent. So if you were the opposing lawyer in that courtroom, then the only way to refute that is to convince the jury that the eyewitness isn't credible. He's lying, mistaken, or crazy, but whatever the case, you cannot rely on his testimony. It's not true. Again, not speaking from my own experience, just speaking from what we have learned anecdotally from Hollywood, <laughs> which is where we get, quite honestly, like 50 or 60% of our knowledge these days. But that's another, that's another message. Uh, but that's essentially what's happened to Paul's witness in the churches at Galatia. So just a few years prior, he had planted several churches throughout Galatia, and now leaders from the greater church are rolling into town, and what they're doing is they're calling into question Paul's credibility. They said something like this, you can't really trust Paul's take on the gospel Take it from us. We come from the birthplace of Christianity, and Paul came way later in the story. Therefore, the gospel that he preached to you was fine, 
but incomplete. And unless you trade in your culture and national heritage and everything else, then you, and accept our ancestral traditions instead, then you cannot belong in the family of God. So it's Jesus on the cross for your sins and to free you from the kingdom of darkness. And on top of that, it's observing our law. That's how you're saved. That's how you're welcomed into the family of God. That's what was going on in the early 50s AD. And what we found out last week is that the church in Galatia was buying it. And as a result, the fabric of the beautiful multi-ethnic family that God intended began to fray. And that's the situation they found themselves in. And I believe that God wants us to study this letter together right now in 2022, the most polarizing time that I've ever experienced in my 34 years of life, because I believe there is a similar threat that is jeopardizing evangelical orthodoxy here in the West. And we've talked about this at length, but our specific issue is not like the Jew-Gentile conflict that they experienced, but our, our issue has a very similar flavor of like toxic disunity. Um, here's what I think it is, or here's what I think the culprit is. We have this impulse, and that is to put our tribal identity, our political ideology, our ethnicity, or our theological preference out front and in the way of other Jesus people from sharing uh, gospel love and Christian love and fellowship with us. And that is not the gospel. In fact, the scripture would say that's another, another gospel because Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible would never do that with you or me. Like, think about that. Oh man, I, I wish I could save Andrew from all of his sins, but he's too white ring. Or he's vaccine hesitant. Or he's a white entitled millennial from the suburbs of Portland. I, I wish I, I could. I can pretend to love him from a distance, but I could never embrace him and treat him like family. And if I'm striking a nerve here, um, I think it's because this is at least somewhat true of us and our culture today. We draw lines and make issues out of things that Jesus did not intend. And in so doing, we sacrifice the very thing that we believe that Jesus stopped at nothing to unite him with us. And if we deny that for other people, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? So in the age of the church, the family of God is diverse by design. And as a reflection of God's creativity and beauty, we are one new family. If we had a heading or a title for the series, it would be that. It's not easier than hiving off into our like-minded tribes like we like to do in here in the West, but it's way more rich and it's way more indicative of God's heart. As a part of our mission, we are one new family like Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17 and this is what we need to practice. And that's what this passage and quite frankly, the major argument of the book of Galatians is all about and one of the main reasons why Paul is writing and he needs to start off his argument as he's sort of uh, rebutting his critics with a defense about the gospel. So this section is a rebuttal to his critics about the gospel. And he says, okay, you guys want to talk gospel? I agree. Let's do that. Let's let's talk about what the gospel actually is. And there are at least three layers of Paul's argument from the passage that we just read, and we're going to examine those three layers as best as we can in the time that we have. The first layer, Paul is just defending his credibility as a gospel guy. 
right? It's that courtroom drama that I was telling about before. The lawyers are arguing about whether or not this witness can be considered reliable or not. And so he's just defending his credibility as a gospel guy. I don't think he's being defensive. I think there's a difference there, and I want to make that distinction because um, he's not like, it's not like when I'm in an argument with Grace or whatever and I'm, my ego's being wounded and I'm defensive. It's that he's responding to his critics who are questioning the reliability of his testimony about Jesus. He cares about the gospel, and he makes that really, really clear. In the second layer... He explains why his gospel is not a departure from the God of Israel, like his critics were saying, but really it's like the deepest form of loyalty to him and, quite frankly, Israel's ancestral traditions as well. So in other words, he's saying we're not abandoning the faith of our fathers. In Jesus, we're actually living in the promises that they dreamed about and were prophesied through the prophets. And in the third layer, he just gives us a beautiful example to follow in faithfulness to God. And so deep down, Paul just wants to be a true servant of Jesus who died on the right hill. I love that phrase, um, die on the right hill, because of course Jesus died on a hill, right? And that was the right one for Jesus to die on um, in the sense that he was dying for our sin and to win us from uh, the kingdom of darkness and to bring ultimate victory so that you could belong in the family of God. And Paul is saying, man, the, the, the critics of the gospel of Jesus and people inside the church are wanting us to die on different hills, but I, I'm going to stand right here squarely on the gospel and I'm willing to die for this, but, but little else. And so um, if you're taking notes, write those couple things down because these are the layers that we're going to be discussing today as we look at the text. So beginning in verse 10, this is the beginning of Paul's rebuttal. Um, so uh, we're just looking at layer one right now. So just kind of be thinking about Paul's defense of himself as a credible witness to the gospel. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I love this for all kinds of reasons. I think this directly applies to us as well. He said, picture yourself for a moment in Paul's position. You risked your life, you risked your livelihood to plant Jesus churches in a foreign country, and now you have all of these critics who are like undoing your work that you, um, that you worked hard for, and they're challenging your authority. How would you respond to that? Or how would you process that? What's the healthy way to move through that kind of criticism? Well, for Paul, he's just remembering his identity. He says, I'm a servant of Christ. And he's remembering who this is all for. So he says, this isn't for my vanity. I didn't plan all of these churches so, and go on this missionary journey so that people will be loyal to me or people will worship my name. He says, this is not a popularity contest. Listen, if Paul was trying to win a popularity contest, he failed miserably at that, and we probably shouldn't be taking his literature seriously. But when you choose to see the book of Acts, and when you read it, you'll see that everywhere he went, he gained followers, and he gained opponents. And sometimes those followers later became opponents, and other times those opponents became followers. Here's the point. People then and now are confusing, and they waver between opinions. So if you, I'm going to say this very plainly and, and, and slowly because I, I, I want you to internalize this because I think this is one of the lies of our culture. If you base your self-worth 
or if you base your beliefs of what's right and true on popular opinion, then you're going to be living a confusing and chaotic life. Do not base your worth externally on what other people say or think about you. Case in point, the culture wars of the 2010s. Trying to form a coherent worldview from the shifting prevailing opinions from our culture in these last 10 years is like trying to solve a puzzle with like 20% of the pieces from seven different boxes. It just is not going to work. It's not a coherent worldview. And so therefore, when you try and live according to the secular gospel, you, you just wind up living a chaotic and crazy life that's based on the shifting sand of prevailing opinion in the West. Instead, Paul says, I'm not trying to please people. That's not actually why I'm here. I'm here to please God. If I was still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. So in other words, he's clearly saying, this is who I am. This is my identity. I'm a servant of Jesus. That's who I am. And I'm here to honor my king. It's his opinion that matters to me and his alone. And so the reason why we need to meditate on this is because this is spiritual wisdom that grounds us in anxious times. And I know for many of you, you are living in anxious times. So when prevailing opinion in our world is shifting and people are trying to define themselves by what other people say or think, that's not what you do. A spiritually wise person, you know who you are. And you know who you're aiming to please. You're serving Jesus. You're trying to please him. He's the one, in the language of Matthew 28, who has all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And he's promising to, coming, to come back soon. It's his opinion that matters most. So Paul's saying, I'm not shaken by people who disapprove of me. I can handle that. I even expect it. It makes sense to me that there's going to be people who disapprove of me and my message. I'm prepared for that. Jesus himself said, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So in other words, what Jesus is saying, if everyone approves of you, then it probably means you're like shape-shifting your values and your personality in order to please the crowd that you're with. And he's saying, no, 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 that's, not, that's, that's a losing battle. So we want to live like Paul. Pleasing people is a losing game that doesn't live up to the hype. Let's be crystal clear of who we are and let's seek to honor and please King Jesus above all else. Amen? Amen. Verse 11 says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. You've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among, people, among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. Okay, so this is just one of the very few places in the New Testament where Paul actually recounts his story of how he trusted in Jesus and how he was saved. He's saying, this is what happened to me. And he's doing this, again, in service of his credibility as a gospel guy. He says, um, okay, remember, I'm not here to, to, uh, to seek anyone's approval. That said, I will defend my credibility as a gospel guy. Again, he's not being defensive. He's trying to establish the veracity of his gospel. This was a really unique time in church history that is difficult for me personally to relate to, and here's why. 
the apostles, the 12 who followed Jesus around Galilee, heard all of his teachings, watched him do all of his miracles, they were still alive, except for Judas. There was Peter, James, and John, that whole crew. They were still around. And they were famously, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, preaching the gospel about Jesus. And they spoke with incredible authority. I mean, think about that. Of course they did. He said, I followed Jesus. I, I followed him. I, I saw him crucified. And then I saw him alive again. I put my hands or my fingers in the holes in his hands. And trust me, he is alive. Jesus is Messiah. Believe in him and you will be saved. The first hand witness account of Jesus alive was super powerful. And then as the gospel began to spread, of course, there were other people, not immediate eyewitnesses, but Others like Philip and Stephen um, in chapter 6 and 7 of the book of Acts who were also sharing the gospel. And because of how the gospel spread, they were doing what you would do, which was rely on the credibility of the other eyewitnesses. They didn't quote Romans because Romans had, was, hadn't been written yet. They were just passing down the story that um, they had received from Jesus and they received from the witnesses. So I imagine Stephen and Philip saying things like, you know, I actually heard all of what I'm telling you from Mary and Mary was the first person to see Jesus alive. So again, they're relying on the credibility of these eyewitnesses. So the more connected or the more, yeah, relationally invested and connected you were with those eyewitnesses, the more credibility that you would have. Listen, Mary is a friend. We went to middle school together. I go over to her house sometimes. We hang out. She makes a killer falafel. Trust me, she's not telling a lie. She's telling the truth. Jesus is king. He's alive. And she saw him with, his own, with her own two eyes. So that's sort of how the early tradition of spreading the gospel and how it went. And then you had this guy, Paul, right? And Paul was a renegade from the start. He says, I didn't hear this from somebody else. I didn't hear it from like a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend of Peter or something like that. I actually received the gospel from Jesus himself through the revelation um, of, of Christ from God. And that word revelation, it, it occurs uh, several different times in the passage that we read at the beginning. And it's the Greek word apocalypsis, which is where we get the word apocalypse. But really it just means re the revealing or the unveiling. And so Paul is, is describing and recounting an encounter that he had with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus back in Acts chapter 9. And uh, at the time, you guys, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you know that Jesus, or excuse me, uh, uh, Paul uh, was a religious terrorist. He, he was, uh, in his words, like zealously defending and preserving the faith of Israel. To the point where he saw Christians as the enemy that he was on a crusade to kill. And that's exactly what he was up to in Acts chapter 9 verse 3 where it says this. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. You guys, this is, quite honestly, the most significant story of transformation in the history of the early church. You have a violent, anti-Jesus crusader becoming the gospel's biggest advocate and uh, a, an on-fire church planter 
So instead of killing Christians, he willingly became a martyr for Jesus. In fact, there were dozens of times where his life was being threatened for his belief in Jesus, but he was willing to go all the way to his own death in order to um, hold his, his, his loyalty to, and allegiance to Jesus. And he says the reason for that kind of transformation, which is profound, was that Jesus revealed himself to me. I saw him with my own two eyes. And he said, that's where I get my gospel. I'm just like the other eyewitnesses. I'm just like Peter, James, and John. I don't need anyone to tell me that Jesus rose from the dead because I saw him raised too. And that's what I'm basing my gospel on. I've talked with the source myself. And then another way that Paul sort of describes or um, defends his credibility, if you will, is through his like Jewish credentials, which he had a lot of. He was like the Ivy League, uh, uh, like elite type Jewish dude. He, he really knew his stuff. He surpassed his peers, he says. He was an expert in the law. So for his critics to accuse him of having like a thin and incomplete gospel that like dis- disrespected the law, disrespected the Jewish tradition, that was a huge mistake. And that's what he gets into um, in layer two, which we're going to talk about now. Layer two of Paul's argument, we discover that the true gospel is not a departure from the God of Israel, but really it's the deepest form of loyalty to him. And um, Paul's like this expert in, in the law and in the Hebrew scriptures. And so I've, I've often wondered what it must be like for him or what it would have been like for him on that road to Damascus to sort of suddenly see Jesus for who he actually was. And in an instant to have all of those Jewish traditions and holidays and prophetic promises and temple rituals come like rushing into his consciousness and fall into place. Everything that the Jewish uh, people and tradition had been practicing over the millennia just finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus the Messiah. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. And he's doing this in a way as he responds to his critics who were also uh, experts or they knew their Hebrew Bibles as well. And so because of that, Paul leaves these little Easter eggs in his rebuttal that highlights how his version of the gospel doesn't represent a low view of the Jewish tradition, but actually upholds the prophetic promises of God in the most reverential way possible. And we don't really have time to get in all to the details of the Hebrew, Hebrew grammar and the Hebrew scriptures here, but I do just want to paraphrase for you and give you a short snapshot of what I'm, I'm, I'm actually talking about. So Paul, in his rebuttal, he gives us these Easter eggs. Here's the first one. He says, uh, when God who set me apart from my mother's womb, when he says that in verse 15, it's an homage to the prophet Jeremiah, who was also in that exact same construction set apart from his mother's womb to prophetically speak about the new covenant that doesn't, isn't based on the righteousness of man, but based on the faithfulness of God. That's Jeremiah chapter 31. The reference to him being formed in his mother's womb is chapter 1, verse 5. And then Paul sort of throughout this letter repeatedly, and also here in verse 10, calls himself a servant of Christ. That is a clear reference back to, again, if you're a Jewish person, if you're a Hebrew person, um, is a clear reference back to the servant motif in Isaiah chapter 52 through 57, which we looked at together as a church during our last Advent series. 
There, here we have the picture of Messiah who's referred to as the one who wasn't there to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom and to be crushed for our iniquities and so on. Again, this is Paul leaving an Easter egg. This is what the scriptures were teaching all along. We just happened to miss it. And then when Paul talks about his zeal and spending time in Arabia, he was drawing a clear line to the prophet Elijah who because of his great zeal, 1 Kings chapter 19, for the house of God, he challenged and then killed a bunch of the prophets of Baal um, because he, they were sodomizing the temple. And so he is um, coming against them in this really strong way. And it's, it's said it's because of his zeal that drew him to this. Again, it's the same construction that Paul uses that's used in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 9. And then immediately following that story, Elijah retreats to Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai, which is where God met with Moses, and it's called the Mount of God's Presence, which is in Arabia. And after Elijah leaves the Mount of God's Presence, he goes back through Damascus, where Paul is. So in other words, there's all of these different things that at first glance we totally miss because of our uh, cursory American readings. But in, Paul is receiving the gospel from Jesus, and when he receives the gospel from Jesus, he's not going to seek approval or validation from other humans. He goes to the mount of God's presence to do business with God himself. And he's not consulting human opinions. He's going to the Lord. So what are we supposed to do with these layers, or what are we supposed to do with those poetic or prophetic echoes? Um, one scholar puts it like this, and I think it's helpful. He says, the prophetic echoes locate Paul on the map of God's Israel-shaped promises. And these multiple resonances serve Paul's underlying rhetorical purpose. If anyone is being disloyal to Israel's God and his covenant purposes, it is certainly not him. The disloyalty is found in those who are turning their back on the grace of God's call. So far, far, so far from being a traitor to, to Israel's traditions, Paul was claiming to be embodying those very traditions in a whole new way. But it was, he insists, the new way for which God had been preparing all along. Isn't that good? So the expanding of the family of God to include ethnicities outside of Israel was always the plan and they did not have to fall in line and obey the Torah in order to belong in the family of God. In fact, Paul is saying to burden people with the law would be rejecting new covenant grace and the sacrifice that Jesus gave. That's actually the low view of the Torah, he's saying. If you are a Jewish person, Paul's making the argument, who wants to keep eating kosher and celebrating Passover as an expression of worship that leads to Jesus, by all means, knock yourself out, go for it. But do not make it a barrier or an obstacle for someone else who's trusting in Jesus. That's missing the point of Moses, and that's missing the point of the Hebrew Scriptures altogether. Or if you want to modernize that example to something that's more um, apropos for our time and space, if you want to get vaccinated and you want to share Johns Hopkins University articles with your friends every day about the new COVID data, by all means, go for it. Um, you are free to do that. Or if you want to vote Democrat and tweet your politics twice a day, you are also free in Christ to do that as well. If you choose, you can go to a rally or enroll in a Southern Baptist seminary. Fantastic. No one here will stop you. 
but do not put any of those things before him, before Jesus is more primary than what should be secondary. And do not withhold your familial devotion to sisters and brothers who do not conform to your secondary views. Let me say that again. Don't withhold your familial devotion to sisters and brothers who do not conform to your secondary views. And anything besides Jesus on the cross and him raised again to offer new life to anyone who would trust in him is a secondary thing. He's saying to do, to do opposite is to fly in the face of the gospel that's handed down from Jesus. He's saying that's actually a low view of the work of Messiah. This week, um, as we often do, we had somebody reach out and say, hey, could you, like, like your doctrinal statement, I saw it on the website, and it's fine, it's great, it's, it's whatever, but, but what about all of the other things that's not listed there? And I said, well, sure, like, what do, you, what do you mean? What are you referring to? And he had questions about our views on Jesus' sexual ethic, um, role in civic responsibilities as Christians, and a bunch of other, what I would consider to be secondary things. And I was like, dude, absolutely, let's get together, let's talk about those things, I'd be happy to talk with them talk with you about them. But he's like, sure, fine, whatever. But why are they not on the website? And there's a very good reason for that for me personally. Um, our doctrinal statement on the website is like our orthodox evangelical confession. And the way I described it to him, it's everything that I would die for and nothing I wouldn't. Jesus is king. God is triune. The father's enthroned in heaven. The Holy Spirit is here, present, active, working in the church. The Bible is true and reliable. Jesus is coming back to redeem the saints. That's the orthodox Christian confession. Everything I'm willing to die for and nothing that I'm not. Because we want to promote the unity in the family of God. And we can disagree and disagree passionately about every kind of secondary issue. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have discourse and conversation and disagree or squash out any of the diverse views that exist here in this room. In fact, we should celebrate those things. But those should never be reasons why we won't maintain familial devotion to one another. Are you with me? Awesome. So, third layer, third and final layer. This part's going to go quickly. Paul just gives us what I think is a beautiful example to follow. And it's an example of faithfulness to God. See, he's defending himself and he's demonstrating how his view of the gospel is not a lesser gospel. It's actually the one true gospel. But then he also is just telling his story of transformation that began with God in a moment in time revealing his glory and revealing the glory of Jesus to him. And it was this moment where he trusted and was converted and became a son or a daughter or son of God. And this is what it says in verse 15. Well, when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Just two phrases to, to pick out there and to observe. First one is that he set me apart. God set me apart. This is um, a way of saying that God made me holy. Or God made me um, consecrated, devoted to him. 
He says, my, my use and my purpose is now devoted to God. That's what the idea of holiness is. We think about it in terms of moral purity. That's a good start to our understanding of being set apart. But it's also about being consecrated for God's divine purpose and use. And so what he's saying is that, hey, as a part of this, as a part of my story, I was actually persecuting God. I was persecuting the church. I was a part of the problem. But then when Jesus revealed himself to me, it, it, it all started to make sense. And I realized that I had been set apart from my mother's womb to be a part of God's work. Um, Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, your holiness is not just about abstaining from the wrong things. It's about uh, having a missional vocation and going forward into the world with God's redemptive love and actually seeing yourself as a part of that purpose that God has for you. And so we see this so clearly with Paul. He's going, man, you know, I understand that by standing and dying on this hill, I'm making a lot of enemies, enemies outside the church, even enemies inside the church. But he says, I'm willing to do it because I am set apart for him. And the question that I just want to invite you to consider today is, are you also set apart for him? I would argue that regardless of whether you're conscious of this or not, you're set apart for something. You're devoted to some kind of purpose. You're consecrated for some kind of purpose. Oftentimes in the West, it's for nefarious, narcissistic reasons. We're just kind of, life is basically about me. But what Paul is saying is, now I, I, I've made a clear distinction for me. And this is something that God did for me. He set me apart. Therefore, I am consecrated for his purpose. I'm devoted to him. That's the question for your reflection today. And number two, he says, he called me by his grace. He called me by his grace. Now, there's a lot of uh, technical theological conversation that goes around this word called, um, most of which we're just not going to get into today. The simplest way to understand this is just that um, to be called by God is to be singled out by him. And drawn to him and into his presence to be his child. He's just saying, I chose you. Before you were ever seeking me, before you ever wanted me, I, I already died for you. I already gave my life for you. And I called you by name. Scripture says that we are adopted into the family of God as daughters and sons. That's what it is to be called. You are adopted into the family. And he's done all of this on your behalf. This, for me, just provokes, hopefully in you it does as well, just gratitude. That man, the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's not actually for myself that I live. It's not um, according to the pattern of this world. I live by the grace of God. That's how I am alive in him today. And so, therefore, I'm completely motivated and um, focused on that purpose, just like Paul. And so I just want to invite you to reflect on your own personal story, how you came to faith, how Jesus was revealed to you, and when you decided to follow him. 
And then I would just want you to consider, have you taken that extra step that Paul has of becoming conscious to the reality that God has set you apart and called you by his grace for the unique purpose? For Paul's case, I think this applies to us as well. He says that we might preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, that we would be a part of the outgrowth out of the church. That we would be in, uh, in service to the mission of God. And that's what we want to be about as a, as a church and as a community. And I hope that's what you want to be about as an individual. I think about as we launch Alpha and the sacrifice that we're asking many of you to make on your Tuesday evenings to be a host or a helper, to devote yourself to prayer, to caring for people who are outside the family of God. This is why we do that. We do that because Jesus called us. We're alive by his grace in the first place. That's how we got to where we are. And so, of course, we devote ourselves to this missional call. You are set apart. You are called by God's grace. Um, And then I just want to guide you in a little reflection as we close here. That we are here to please Jesus and we are his servant. Remember, Paul says that, man, he's clear on his identity and he knows who he's aiming to please. And that's how we want to anchor ourselves today as we close. Um, I I need to end with just something that's been going on in my own story. Um, I've read this passage for years. And I would have never considered myself to be a people pleaser. Um, At first glance, I'm pretty secure in who I am. And I'm not... um, overly concerned about what other people think. But in my 30s, I'm beginning to discover things that are there that I didn't realize were there before. And one of those is that while I don't care about whether or not I have status in society or whether I make a lot of money or whether you're impressed by me in all kinds of different areas, I I am deeply um, fragile around whether or not you see me as a virtuous leader. That's my unique thing, is that that's where my ego is fragile. I want you to see me, not as a fantastic pastor or preacher or whatever, but as someone who is a virtuous, has virtuous character. And if that's being questioned, or if you have some reason to believe that that's not true, man, that wounds me to the deepest part. And I all of a sudden become an insane people pleaser. And I say that to say this, that the Lord is guiding me in that. And fortunately, there have been a lot of things that have happened in the last couple of years that are just outside of my control, that I realize I can't control the narrative of how people think or feel about me. I can't convince people that I am virtuous, and some people might just think otherwise. That's been God's gift to me, and I've realized that, just like Paul realized, you're going to have supporters, you're going to have opponents, Sometimes your opponents become supporters. Other times your supporters become opponents. You cannot control that. People waver in their opinions. People are confusing. You can't control how people perceive you. And so I'm beginning to wrestle through that as, as, a, as hopefully a maturing disciple of Jesus. And I wanted to just like lay that out before you because um, I hate I would hate it if you, if you got the impression that I felt I was some completed work because I know that I'm not. But as I'm leaning into this, it's very helpful for me to go through this practice of anchoring myself in who I am in Christ. I am his servant. You are his servant. And I'm aiming to please him. 
No one and nothing else. So I just want to invite you to think about what is your uh, unique people-pleasing tendency? And where are you, maybe different from me, susceptible to wanting to please others, where in reality you should be just wanting to please the Lord? So we're going to reflect on that together as we stand and pray. So would you please stand with me? And let's just close our eyes and come back to center in the presence of God. This is a practice that we often do on our Tuesday morning prayer times where we contend for an awakening to the gospel in our city. And by coming back to center, we just mean that we're coming awake to the presence of God in the room. And I just want to say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for being who you are. Thank you that you don't waver in your opinion about us. God, thank you that you are not confusing. Thank you that you've made it really clear what your goals are for us. That we would become your servant. And that we would follow in your way. And that we would aim to please you. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come and to fall on us place. And God, would you just gently bring to the surface the ways that we're tempted to try and please others. Notice how God's voice is not condemning towards you. Notice how he's not shaming you or ashamed of you. Notice his voice is that he accepts you for who you are. He loves you and has loved you even when you were an enemy to him. Even before you chose to follow him, he still loved you. So how much more now that you are adopted, now that you are a daughter and you are a son, how much more does God's affection just burn for you? His passionate love for you. So now I just want to encourage you to whatever it is that you hold on to, whatever it is that you're afraid that other people might say or think about you, just invite you to release that as though it's like a heavy rock that you're carrying and just let it hit the floor. And now that your arms are open and your hands are ready, just receive from God the gift of his peace. God, I pray your peace over my friends. I pray your peace over my sisters and my brothers. guide you in an affirmation we thank you God for your gospel thank you for the cross thank you for rising from the dead we are your servants and I just want to challenge you 
gently to take this moment to not let me say it for you, but you tell God in your own words, God, I am your servant. You can do that quietly to yourself. You can do it out loud if you choose. You can do it in any way you want, but don't let someone else say it for you. You say it for yourself. God, I am your servant. God, I desire to please you. Don't let me say it for you. You say it for yourself. how the Holy Spirit of God is setting you apart for a holy purpose. Purpose to please Him, a purpose to go on the advance, to see this gospel take hold. Notice how He's calling you to tear down the things that divide Christian brother and sister. Notice how He's drawing you into familial devotion to people who disagree with you about your secondary views. And notice how Jesus comes to the forefront of all of that. So God, we praise you, bless your name. You're worthy of it all as we sing our songs to you. We pray that you would be glorified with our singing and with our worship. May it be pure hearted. You guys, we're gonna come to the table of communion. We do this every week as a reminder of the work that Jesus did on the cross. And we do it symbolically together as one church because we are united in Christ. And then we also just wanna open up the opportunity to receive prayer. If you need prayer for any reason, friends will be at the back with the praying hands and we'd love to pray with you. Let's sing and worship.